A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Well, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And well, yes, of course, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Now, today we're going to be joined by the Reverend Paul Cowley. Having spent time in prison himself, Paul has spent decades supporting ex-offenders and he's pioneered the Alpha course in prisons. We'll hear stories of God at work through the justice system and find out how Christians can play their part. But first, I hope you've had a very happy Easter. Politics continues to rumble along, but today... I want to think about the key reason for our Christian hope, the Easter story. In our culture, Easter is a far more low-key event than Christmas. Of course, it is the key festival in the Christian calendar, but it is far harder for our secular society to commemorate the gruesome death of a man on a cross and to get their heads around his subsequent resurrection than it is to celebrate the birth of a cute baby. There aren't many primary school passion plays to rival the nativities. The striking thing about the Easter story, though, is that it hasn't changed in 2000 years. Countless worldviews and philosophies have come and gone, left in the dust whilst the Christian story endures. Christianity is often dismissed as out of date and irrelevant, in which case, why is it still around when most of its rival philosophies are no more? Those who do not believe should be curious about this. We can see that the Gospels were expressly written with the aim of convincing their audience that the events actually happened. Luke chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 say that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning and is writing his account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. John in chapter 20 verse 31 says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There are plenty of books setting out a rational case for the veracity of the Easter story. For example, the existing manuscripts of the Gospels are dated much closer to the times they describe than many copies that we have of other ancient texts, such as Plato. One of the most powerful reasons for me is that the disciples themselves were willing to go to their deaths rather than deny Jesus. Who would do that for something they knew to be a lie? Winston Churchill said that history is written by the winners. But at the time when the New Testament documents were being written, the winners were mighty Rome and the religious authorities which hated the Christians. So where is the competing evidence showing us that the resurrection never happened? It just doesn't exist. The silence is as deafening as the evidence is overwhelming. As for the bold claims of the incarnation, virgin birth and resurrection, well, if you consider even for a moment that there could be a mighty, omnipotent God who brought the universe into being, then surely these things are easy for him to accomplish. Why would we have a problem believing them if we can accept even the possibility of there being a God at all? There seems to be plenty of evidence for the Easter story for those who are willing to look. Jesus commends those who have not seen and yet have believed. But even whilst he walked the earth, there were plenty of people who saw his miracles and heard his teaching and still did not believe, Judas for one. So I think that those of us who do believe should also be curious about why so many people turn their backs on this good news. 
It may be that the church doesn't always do a good job evangelizing, that people feel Christianity is unattractive and weird, that it jars too much with society's values, or that people have personal stories of Christians being hurtful or unwelcoming towards them. These are all things we need to be aware of and, where necessary, repent of too. But I believe that one of the major reasons why people turn away from the offer held out to them by Jesus is simply because his teaching is apparently so hard. Jesus tells us we need to surrender ourselves to him, to take up our cross, to put ourselves last, to love our enemies. This is a staggeringly difficult message to accept in a culture where we're encouraged to be our own self-champions against the world. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the gateway sin, and we are often too proud to admit that we can't do everything in our own strength, that we cannot save ourselves. Yet, as Bishop Graham Tomlin says in his book, Bound to be Free, it is paradoxically when we surrender our rights over ourselves that we find the freedom to be the people we were created to be. And once we become convinced that Jesus is the way, we find ourselves saying with Peter in John 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. So as we go forward into a new term with local elections on the horizon and a host of challenges facing the government, let's pray for our families, friends, colleagues and leaders to come to believe and to know, along with Peter, that Jesus is the Holy One of God. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, to our guest this week, Paul Cowley is the author of Thief, Prisoner, Soldier, Priest, amongst many other things as well. Paul, how are you? Good morning. I'm good, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. Good to speak to you. I'm, uh, I'm fine. Thank you. It's a real blessing to have you with us. And um, I'm going to ask you what I always ask our guests right at the beginning in the expectation of a, a really fascinating answer. Oh, Tell dear. us, Paul, a little bit about how you came to become a Christian. I'll give you the very short version, otherwise <laughs> we'll be here for days. Um, I was born into a very dysfunctional family from um, Manchester, just my father and mother, both atheists, both alcoholics. Um, so I had a pretty bumpy upbringing, expelled from school at 15, um, got in trouble with the police at 16, 17, ended up going to prison for a short while, uh, HMP Risley, between Manchester and, and uh, Liverpool. Came out of there, joined the army, had a great career, 17 years in the military. Um, left that and then um, a few things happened. But the short version is I was I was nearly 40 years of age and I'd been married and divorced twice. I'd left a son to my first marriage. Um, I'd basically turned into my father, who I didn't really like. So I'd become this sort of... Um, you know, a good soldier, but but quite a heavy drinker from being bullied at school to, to learning how to box and fight. So, you know, if you haven't got a moral compass, that doesn't go down very well. And uh, just couldn't hold on to a relationship. So I had a good military career, um, but my moral life was just horrendous. And when I look back to him, I think it's, you know, I blamed my mother and father for lots of things over the years, but they had no instruction of how to bring up a child, really. My father was put in a home at five. My mother's uh, first relationship, uh, her husband beat her. So, you know, they had, they had no idea, actually. And, and they did the best they could, but it, it wasn't brilliant. So so the army was fantastic for me. I left the army. Um, and a few things happened. One was um, I, I hadn't seen my mother for, for a very long time because, one, I didn't want to. And... Um, the, the short version is she got back in touch with me. She'd separated when I'd left home. She'd got married twice, I think, again, and divorces and all that stuff, too much drink. 
and anyway, she came to, to see me and she stayed with us for a little while. Me and Amanda, my girlfriend, went off to do some skiing. And, uh, and while I was away, she got ill. Uh, and, and unfortunately, she got very ill and then died. And then that threw me a little bit, but not for the obvious reasons. It threw me because um, I hadn't had this relationship with my mother. And then all of a sudden, I'd kind of had it thrust upon me. Uh, and I suppose I wanted it, but I didn't know what to do with it. And then when I was getting used to that, even for like 10, 12 days with her, she died. So it put me in a spin and I was really angry because um, it's something I didn't want. Then I got and then when I got it and I wanted it, it got taken off me. Mm. No, no spiritual dimension, just just very mm. angry man. Anyway, we buried my mother and uh, got on with life and I, she had a few things and I put them in bin bags to get to get rid of them, to be honest. And, and one of the things I found was a Bible, the old Good News Bible. Uh, and, and as I looked through it, some pictures of me fell out as a, as a kid, which was a bit upsetting. And then, like any good Christian, it was all marked with highlighters and, you know, and all this stuff. And I had no idea what was going on. I just could not get this idea of my mother being a Christian. She was mm. five foot. She was a crazy lady. Uh, she was, you know, a drinker, quite violent verbally. Um, and then she died on me. And they're saying she's a Christian. So mm. I went on this mission, uh, really, uh, without Amanda. She, she wasn't that bothered about it. And I just went to lots of churches. And my girlfriend then, Amanda at the time, worked for a company in London, so I stayed with her in London and uh, I got invited to Holy Trinity Brompton. You know, to me, it was just a church. Mm. I went in one Sunday. It was nice. It was big. It was, you know, lots of people in there. Uh, I was a bit nervous. And then at the end, um, a lovely guy who was speaking, it's called Tom Gillum. Uh, he was a curate there. He said to anybody, if you want some prayer, if you're feeling sort of, trouble why don't you come forward and we'll pray for you and i said to amanda i'm going to check this stuff out and i went forward i went to the to the front of the church and he came down and stood next to me and he was a very different man than i was used to being around very posh very nice uh, and he said um can i pray for you i said you know what do what you want do what you do and uh and he prayed for me and it was a simple prayer and he said Lord, I pray you put this man where you want him to be so that he can grow in a relationship with you. Amen. And he walked away. And I guess I was waiting for a fight, Tim, to be honest, or an mm. argument. And there wasn't one. And as I went out, someone handed me a leaflet, and it was an Alpha Course leaflet. There's a young lady on the door gave me a leaflet, and I went for a coffee with Amanda, and I read it. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do this course. Because 17 years in the Army, I've done a course on everything. I'll do a course on God and I'll see what happened to my mum. So we both went on the Alpha course at, um, at Holy Trinity Brompton. And, and literally halfway through it on the Holy Spirit part on the weekend, I didn't know what any of that was, I, I had a moment. Um, and I had to admit that I, I was overwhelmed by the love of God. I'd heard six weeks of Jesus and all that stuff. Who is he? What did he do? And then the Holy Spirit part was... Um, it was Nicky Gumble, the vicar at the time, or the curate at the time, was talking about the love of God. And, and he said, God loves you unconditionally. 
And it was that word that just went off in my heart. I thought, how can he love me unconditionally? I know me. I know what I'm like, you know, and and someone put their hand on my shoulder and uh, and said, Paul, can I pray for you? And I got upset. I started to to cry and and I dropped to my knees and um, oh, it's getting me now. It's a long time. that was. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I said, if you're up there and all this stuff's true and you can love me unconditionally, the man that I am, then I'll have some of whatever you've got to offer. And a, and a couple of lads prayed for me either side of me. And that was the start of my journey, to be honest. And it was it was quite overwhelming. And it still is. The unconditional love bit, hence why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Is I find I find that incredible that God loves us unconditionally. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Paul Cowley, and he's the author of Thief, Prisoner, Soldier, Priest. Paul, you just told us about your coming to faith and uh, a, a a very very moving story. Uh, and you talk about the the role that Alpha played in in you becoming a Christian. Now you've turned the tables, if you like, and spent a big amount of your time uh, pioneering Alpha inside prisons. Tell me about how that came to be. Uh, well, again, you know, after what I've just told you, I started going to church on on Sundays as you do, and then. Um, I got I got interviewed by Nicky Gumble um, uh, about a testimony. You know, I think I was the only one at the time that sort of looked the way I looked. You know, I had a bit of a beard. I had long hair. I'd left the army. I rebelled a little bit. I was leather jacketed boy, been in prison, divorced. So I was quite a testimony, I guess. <laughs> and, and I gave this testimony about God's love. And someone in the congregation on staff, a lady called Emmy Wilson, came to see me the next day i was then a general manager at champneys uh, the big health club and and she said would you come to prison with me i said no why why would i want to do that not not really no no thank you anyway she's quite persuasive and i ended up going to dartmoor prison as a volunteer uh i drove through the night to get there in the morning there was a chapel service uh, and i gave a bit of a testimony and and two things happened really one 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 chap came up for prayer in the chapel in Dartmoor um, with the chaplain, Bill Birdwood. And he was one of the characters that we probably don't want to talk about who's committed crimes that we don't want to mention in, in a prison. And I did not want to pray with him. Uh, and em, Emmy pushed him in front of me and said, Paul, will pray for you. And I prayed for him. And uh, it was quite hard. Let's put it that way. And yeah. at the end of it, he said, um, are you my brother now? I said, yes, I am. And he said, so does that mean you love me and I'm forgiven? I said, if you're serious, yes, it does. And he spun around and, and walked away. And that was a moment for me about, about freedom, about yeah. grace, about justice, about forgiveness, mm. all in a second. Then on the way home driving, I felt God say to me, I've got a job for you, but you're going to have to trust me. But it will be worthwhile. Mm. And and then I carried on with my work as a as a general manager of a health club, and uh, I did more volunteer in in prison to to help. I met more men, and eventually, one overtook the other. And uh, and Sandy Miller, who was the vicar at the time at HTB, said we'd we'd like you to come on board and and maybe start a prison ministry, and and get yeah. something going. And 
you know, my army head kicked on then, you know, and I thought I can do something. I can do strategy. Yeah. I can establish something. And then I, I got an office. I became uh, a prison pastor. I knew what one of those things were on staff, <laughs> 97. <laughs> and then uh, I established Alpha for prisons and, and I went around, I left my job, I resigned, I went on staff as a pastor and uh, I went to all the chaplains in all the prisons and I'd like to say I gently persuaded them to try Alpha mm. uh, because of my background and, and who I am. I said, come on, give it a crack, let's try it, I'll help you with it. And then Alpha started in the in the prison system and it, it was amazing, you know, and it, it's still growing now. We had a bit of a hit with COVID. Hmm. Um, but it's still in 50 60 percent of the prisons as a, a course on evangelism and, and men and women are coming to christ in, in lots of ways but an alpha is one of them so that's we built a team and that's how i established that and it went on from there really brilliant a bit before we, we come to our the end of our time together i want to talk to you a little bit about what you're doing now which also involves i guess a work work with with prisons and ex-prisoners yeah. um with Iceland. Tell me a little bit about what that <laughs> role involves. Well, I'm always up for a challenge, Tim. I thought I was getting too old to stay away. I'm going <laughs> to start a new career. So I, I had a relationship with the owner and founder of um, of Iceland Foods, Sir Malcolm Walker. He's a, an extraordinary man. And, uh, and I've known him for years. And we've had a few chats over the years about him wanting to get interested in employing ex-offenders. Uh, but it never really materialized into anything, mostly because I was busy, he was busy, you know, I was at HDB. And then we met again last summer and we talked about a few things uh, and, and he said, I'm really serious. And I said, well, this has been dragging on for about 10 years, 12 years now. He said, well, what do I need to do? I said, well, if you want to be serious about it, you need to hire someone at a senior level. You need to um, get them embedded into the system, possibly at a director level. You need to spread it through the system and you need to be serious about it and, and get on with it. You know, Iceland Foods is 30,000 employers, over a thousand stores, nine distribution units. I mean, it's massive. So he said, oh, I'm, I'm not quite ready for that. I said, well, when you are, give me a shout and I'll find you someone in the system. Hence, I'd been in HDB and in the justice sector for about 27 years. So I knew a few people. I said, I'll find someone for you. He rang me up the next day and said, I've been thinking about what, what you said. I said, good, I'll look for somebody. He said, no, I want you. <laughs> so I went to see him in Chester, the head office, and we talked. And uh, I just realized the heart of this organization. They have a, a logo called the Heart of Iceland. And it's, 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 a, it's a heart to do good to the marginalized. You know, if you look at the stores, you'll see that a lot of Iceland stores are in areas and they deliver to areas where some of the big people don't go to because mm. they're too dangerous and too rough. Iceland are there, right in the middle. And they have this heart for the marginalized and for the poor. They have a social action heart before I ever got there. And I got intrigued with it all. And uh, I found myself saying, yes. So in October last year, I went on staff as director of rehabilitation and, mm. and I'm helping men and women now get into employment and we're doing well. We're doing well. And what would you have to say from your experience, both having been a prisoner, the work you've done in prisons with Alpha, uh, sharing the gospel and leading people to Christ and uh, helping others to do so. 
and with your work with Iceland as you look to help to rehabilitate those who've been in prison, yeah. what advice would you give to politicians as to how we should look at prison, how we should manage prisoners' experiences when they are inside and what we should do with them as they prepare to leave? Goodness me, that's uh, how long have you got? <laughs> A um, minute or two. <laughs> I think, I think you know, one... A quick answer was, don't get in the way of people trying to do what they want to do. You know, I've worked with the government. I've been advisor to various prison ministers. In fact, I think I've seen 16 prison ministers. They come and go quite quickly, or justice secretaries. Uh, and, and, you know, some have been brilliant, some not so brilliant. Um, but I've just always said to them, just don't get in the way. Just just help. You don't have to do... You do what you do and, and, and the volunteer sector and the Christian and the church can do what they do. So one, don't get in the way and hinder anything. That's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, when men and women go to prison, the punishment is their loss of liberty. That that's the punishment. That's what it's meant to do. And while you're in there, they're meant to be rehabilitated and come out better than they went in. And they're not. That's not picking on anyone, but it's obvious where that responsibility falls. But we're not. There's not enough money being spent on prisons. There's not enough officers in the prison system. There's not enough education. There's not enough things that turn people around to try and help them when they come out. It's getting better, Tim, than it was 27 years ago. I'm not completely whinging about it, but it's got a long way to go. So I think politicians and especially prison ministers or justice secretaries can take a real personal interest in the prisons. And out of those 16 that I knew, I can honestly say not all of them had been in a prison to visit. And I, I don't know how you know what a prison's like and how to help the men and women in it if you don't know the smell and the noise and the stories. Mm. So I think, you know, as many politicians as possible that are involved in the justice system should go into prison and have a walk around and spend a day in there and then come out and reevaluate their views. On what we should do but prison is not a it's not a vote winner you know helping ex-offenders is not a vote winner but it's amazing there's so much locked up potential within our prisons that there really is and and i think you know one of the things the statistics is if you can give a man or a woman you know proper paid employment it reduces reoffending by 50 percent. that's just the job so imagine what that does to our financial system our social system you know everything so there's a there's a lot to do. It's all in the book. Paul, cool. uh, well, thank you for sharing your story. And, and indeed, the book sounds fascinating. I will make a point of reading it. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the warmth and the depth of your testimony. Thank you for reminding us of radical grace and, and how amazing it is and how freely available it is to, to all. Uh, Paul, what a joy to have you with us. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer. So please do drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk, and there is a very strong chance I'll be answering it on an episode over the next few weeks. Well, this week, Tom from Gloucestershire has been in touch, and he asks this. Jesus told his followers to put their swords away and said his kingdom was not of this world. How do you balance that 
with participation in a parliament which has to oversee the manufacture of arms and deploy lethal force. As ever, Tom, that's a really great question. I think the instance in the New Testament you're referring to there about Jesus telling his followers to put away uh, their swords, or indeed those around him to put away their swords, is when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's a particular context there of Jesus heading for the cross, determined to save us, not allowing anything to get in his way. And that includes any kind of scuffle or worse between the soldiers and his followers. Um, but of course, across the Bible as a whole, we rightly recognize and must submit to the commandment not to kill. And so the taking of life is something which is is outlawed. And yet we're also told to love our neighbor. And so this is one of those things which makes it um, difficult to be a politician <laughs> and indeed to be any rational thinking human being coming to make decisions, wise decisions in this fallen world. Because if we love our neighbor and our neighbor is being persecuted or indeed our neighbor is being annihilated by an aggressor, are we loving our neighbor by standing to one side and doing nothing? Which is why, although I'm not a hawk, I'm somebody who would um, completely oppose uh, military action as a first strike ever. I do think to defend the defenseless, to stand up for justice and what is right, there are times and on balance, there is a case for taking up arms, but we should never do so lightly. Particularly, it means putting people's sons and daughters, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters in harm's way. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this Easter period, um, uh, times of relaxation, times of rest that many of us have had. We thank you also that it is a time when our society will, to a degree at least, tolerate uh, a conversation about you, Lord Jesus. And we know that many people, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of people, have heard the gospel, have heard the Easter story this time round. Maybe not for the first time, but maybe, Lord, by the power of your spirit, maybe the first time they properly heard it. The first time it, the pennies dropped that Jesus died for them because you love them. And I just pray um, through churches around our country and beyond that there would be people who would make themselves known to us, to your church, um, who are exploring, who have chosen to stop fighting you, but instead to accept your peace and put their trust in you. And may you equip us to help those who search and indeed those who make new commitments. Lord, we want to thank you for Paul Cowley. Thank you for his testimony. Thank you for you working powerfully, wonderfully, beautifully in his life. We thank you for the work that he's done in prisons through uh, sharing the gospel, through the Alpha course. And we thank you also for the work he does with Iceland, seeking to rehabilitate prisoners. Would you please give uh, wisdom um, to ministers and civil servants and those making decisions about those who spend time in prison? Would you please open up access to our prisons, those who would wish to share the gospel with prisoners? And would you also uh, enlighten and embolden ministers and other decision makers so that we have the prisons that we need to ensure that there is punishment, but there is also rehabilitation and that you would help people to make a life, a fulfilling life on the outside once their time in prison is complete. We pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
Well, thanks so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premierchristianradio.com forward slash A Mucky Business. 